may be seated. Good morning. If you have, excuse me, a copy of God's Word, please open up to Zechariah chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. We will be in Zechariah chapter 1, 7 through 17. It's been a while going to Zechariah, right? When was the last time you were in Zechariah? Sermon title is The Comfort of the Lord. Let me open us in a word of prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, we look to you, knowing that you, by your Spirit, uh, illuminate the Word of God for the people of God, and so we ask you to do so. Uh, as the Word is preached, drive it deep into our hearts, uh, so that we may glorify you in all things that we do, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt lost and alone? Have you ever felt lost and alone. I remember as a child, and this could be a dream, a recurring dream, but I'm pretty sure it happened. My mother's here this morning, so she can confirm. I got separated from her in a, I think, a J.C. Penney's when I was a child. And although it was brief, I still remember the discomfort. I felt alone, scared. But when my mother found me, I saw her close to me and was immediately comforted. How often do we feel like God is far off from us, and that we are lost and alone? Our text this morning reminds us that since the Lord is in our midst, we must be comforted. Our outline is simple. Point one, a report. Two, a plea. And then a comforting word. We will see a report, a plea, and a comforting word. Let's draw our attention then to the first few verses, verses 7 through 11, a report, where we will see that because the Lord is sovereign over the heavens and the earth, our souls must be content. Let me paint this picture for you briefly. We have the Babylonian Empire through King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. Our first reading was helpful in, in reminding us of that. And the people of Judah were exiled from the land. And eventually, after complicated power struggles through Media and, and Babylon, Cyrus becomes king, king of Persia. And through King Cyrus, God ends the discipline upon his people, and he sends them back to the land through King Cyrus, as we read from Second Chronicles. Whoever there is among you of all this people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. That was the decree. And after Cyrus was King Darius, as we read about in our passage. It was the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, and the second year of Darius. And he allowed the restoration of Israel to continue. Zechariah is prophesying around 520 B.C., almost 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. And this book is being written to a hurt people, a people, you could say, that are probably depressed, who although they've been back in the land for some years now, they have no temple. They have no king. And they're questioning if God has abandoned them. These are people in need of comfort. People in need of comfort, like all of us. And what we have in our passage is the first of several night visions that the Lord gives to Zechariah, the prophet. And looking at verse 8, the first thing Zechariah sees is a rider on a red horse, also known as the one who stood among the myrtle trees. 
who in verse 11 we find out is the angel of the Lord. But what does all this symbolism mean? Verses 7 to 11. What, what's all this symbolism? We have horses of different colors, myrtles, the angel of the Lord, we have uh, who's in the midst of the trees. And so what's going on here? Uh, first, myrtle trees are native to the Judean hill country. So I believe this represents God's people. This represents Israel. And the angel of the Lord then is standing in the midst of his people, you see. He's in the midst of the myrtle trees. Second, this word red is not what you tend to typically think of as red. It's not an un- unrealistic, cartoonish horse that you're seeing here. Uh, this word in Scripture elsewhere is uh, translated as human skin or a cow or lentil soup or blood. Uh, most likely what we have here is a chestnut, a, a chestnut-colored horse. Uh, but the significance isn't the color of the horses. We shouldn't get wrapped up in all the little symbolism. Uh, The big picture is this. The angel of the Lord is the leader of this heavenly army who is sent out by God to patrol the earth. That's the big picture, and that's what is important here. Notice also that the angel of the Lord and God's patrol were standing in the midst of the myrtle trees in the glen. Uh, more woodenly translated, the text says, in the deep, which is usually referring in Scripture to depths of a sea or a river of some sort. But here in this context, is referring to some sort of deep valley. The picture is one of the Lord's armies lurking in the shadows, in this deep valley. This is the Lord's recon team. And so you get a sense of God's secret mission on earth and his kingly rule over all the earth that we can't see, but Zechariah gets a glimpse of. And the scriptures assure us this is happening. The Lord sees, and he has heavenly armies. This is what it means when the scriptures say the Lord is the Lord of hosts. In verse 11, the patrol of the Lord gives a report. The the recon team gives a report. And we learn that the earth is at ease. They are at rest, meaning the nations. Meaning the wicked are living comfortably. They have comfort, they have peace, they have rest. They have that which Israel does not have. Those who God ordained to use for the discipline of his people have done wicked things to Israel and deserve punishment. They should be judged for the wicked intentions of their hearts, and yet they have peace. They are at rest. They are at ease. They have peace. It's like if a robber broke into your home, and before you can jump on him and hog tie him, he runs away. And the police say, well, he ran away. Deal with it. Would you feel comfortable with that? No, the robber's at ease. He's doing just okay. He's still out there. You would want the police to deal with it and to find him. And so that's what is happening here. The Lord is saying, I will find them. I know what's going on. I know that they are at ease. I am in control. And the Lord is therefore comforting them in this text. And so it's a reminder that God is always at work. Even though our enemies may look at ease, he is sovereign, perfectly in control. And the angel of the Lord and his army stand in the midst of us. 
of the Lord's people. And they see the wicked for who they really are. And so in this vision, we're called to contentment, knowing that God surely is in our midst. He's never forsaken us and will never forsake us, will never leave us. He knows what's going on with the wicked and will deal with them. I think about uh, Joseph and Genesis being thrown into prison after refusing to sleep with Potiphar's wife. But as the text says in Genesis 39, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord was with Joseph. He, Joseph could have easily felt like the Lord has abandoned me. For he was thrown in prison for something he didn't even do. Israel was judged for something they, they did do. It's so easy to think the Lord is far from us when we face different trials and tribulations of various kinds, but the Lord here is reminding us, I am with you, as he made clear to Joseph, even, in prison. When Paul says, may remember in Romans, that the Scriptures were written to encourage us to give us hope, this in large part is accomplished through all the times that we read of God's faithfulness, despite Israel's troubles, despite Joseph's troubles. Our text reminds us of that as well. As well, God is comfort to us. He is faithful. And since the Lord knows that the wicked have peace and quiet, your soul should be at peace and quiet. Content, for the Lord is just, and nothing goes unpunished. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Jeremiah Burroughs, an old Puritan, defines contentment this way. What a wonderful definition this is. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Christian, be content. You may be struggling with paying your bills, living paycheck, the paycheck. But remember, God knows, God sees, and God cares. You may be uh, missing a loved one that has recently passed away. Brothers and sisters, God knows, God sees, and God cares. Be content. You may be overwhelmed with life, juggling all sorts of different responsibilities of church and work and family. But brothers and sisters, God knows, God sees, and God cares. You may have enemies that have not been dealt with, but be content knowing, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Maybe you were abused as a child or abused as an adult and the person is still out there. At ease. Be content knowing, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. No matter the enemy, the Lord's armies are lurking in the shadows, watching, waiting, ready to act. For the Lord is sovereign over the heavens and the earth, and so our souls must be content. The Lord is in our midst, my friends. And, uh, but the comfort doesn't end there in our passage. There's more reasons to be comforted. Point two, we see a plea. So let's draw our attention to verses 12 and 13, where we see that because the angel of the Lord is our advocate in heaven, we must be assured of God's faithfulness. In these couple of verses, we have a real beautiful scene here. We have the angel of the Lord interceding on behalf of the people. 
And he shows up. This angel of the Lord, you may know, shows up multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Often uh, the text will equate the angel of the Lord with the Lord himself, as in Exodus 3 in the burning bush, or in Zechariah 3 in the fourth vision, it seems to do that there. But elsewhere, as in our passage, he's distinguished from God. Here we see him speaking to God. But nevertheless, I think we can say, in light of New Testament revelation, that this is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Messiah who intercedes on behalf of his people. The Messiah is often depicted as a mighty warrior, as in Revelation 19, for example. And furthermore, our passage makes clear that the angel of the Lord is the Lord of the angels. They report to him, notice. And notice how he's also described as a man similar to the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua, who appeared to Joshua, who Joshua then falls flat on his face and worships, and the angel does not rebuke. I believe we have here the Son of God, the, the Lord of angels, the angel of the Lord, the great intercessor and priest king. But even if this is not the case, surely, in the very least, this text foreshadows Christ Jesus our mediator, who is the great intercessor, who does make a plea for his people. And so we see here the angel of the Lord makes the plea for Israel, saying, How long, O Lord, until you have mercy on your people? You said through Jeremiah that your judgment would be 70 years. In the judgment, it's been 70 years. And then in verse 13, the Lord hears and answers with comforting words. So we're reminded here, Christian, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so God is faithful and will surely hear the plea of the angel of the Lord. Having a, an advocate is a very powerful thing, is it not? It's assuring, it's comforting, knowing that you're not alone and that someone stands by your side. I, I love that my two older boys go to school together. And one time, Asher told me that someone pushed Levi on the playground, and Asher wanted me to do something about it. He was Levi's advocate, you see, pleading, pleading, interceding on behalf of his uh, brother to his father. Well, Christian, be assured, you have a brother, an older brother, Jesus Christ, who is your advocate and always lives to make intercession for you, as the old hymn says, he ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. You see, we have every reason to be assured of God's faithfulness. For our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, has washed away your sins. And the Lamb who has been slain stands before the Father saying, How long? How long will he suffer with this sickness? How long will you withhold your comfort in order to discipline your servant? How long will you be far off from your child? My blood was shed for him. So redeem him, bless him, make your face shine upon him. Assure him of your marvelous love. Grant him the joy of his salvation. It's so easy to forget that God is in our midst and that the Lord Jesus is our great intercessor who stands before the Father. It's so easy to question God's promises. But as we are reminded here, God is faithful. And he who began a good work in you will surely complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. So you don't get assurance of salvation or assurance of God's faithfulness 
from staring inward, but rather looking to the promises of God and believing. What we have read here today, Christian, believe it. God stands in the midst of the church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against her. As Jesus said, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Furthermore, since we have an advocate with the Father, we can pray in His name. We can come to His throne of grace where we can find help in time of need. So pray, brothers and sisters. How often do you wonder why you doubt God? and yet ignore prayer and spend no time on your knees? How often do you say, I'm busy? God understands. He's the one who gave me this busy job to, be, to begin with. I don't have time to pray. How often do you say, God already knows. I need sleep. Christian, remember the words of the Apostle. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, let's pray in Jesus' name, knowing that He prays for us. And so we have seen in this passage, which reminds us that the Lord is sovereign, We've seen a report that reminds us of this, and so we must be content. We've seen a plea which reminds us that the angel of the Lord is our advocate in heaven. And so we must be assured of God's faithfulness. But there is more comfort in this passage, where the Father will speak in these next verses comforting words to a hurting people. Comforting words. Let's draw our attention then to verse, verses 14 through 17, where we see that because the Lord is surely gracious, we must wait upon him. Now that the 70 years of God's judgment on Jerusalem are coming to a close, his anger is now being directed to the nations, for he is, quote, jealous for Jerusalem, verse 14. God cares for the welfare of his people, you see. He sees the wicked are at ease, they are comforted, and yet his people are not comforted. So the Lord gives this word of comfort to Israel, reminding them of his grace and his love for them. They can still say, you see, we are yours, and you are ours. God makes clear that he was angry with their fathers, the first few verses of chapter 1, and that the discipline was due to his anger, verse 15. It was due to his anger. But you see, the hard heart of the nations, their pride, their arrogance, their foolishness, caused them to, quote, further the disaster. This is not to say that God wasn't in control of them, but simply that their hearts were far from the Lord, and they acted in accordance with their evil desires, stacking evil upon evil upon evil. So God says to the angel of the Lord, yes, the time of no mercy is over, and the time of mercy has come. As he says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. For the Lord says, as it says in Romans 9, and I will have mercy in Exodus 33. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. And so the Lord declares, I will have mercy on you, Israel, and my house will be rebuilt. A measuring line. Notice he says, a measuring line shall be stretched over Jerusalem, which means that the city that was marked out for destruction is now marked out by the Lord for restoration. 
What a word of comfort to a hurting people who've been taken captive to a foreign land without the temple, which is God's presence. It felt to them as they as if they were without God, without hope in the world. And God says in this vision, I am here. I am your God. I will cause you to prosper once again. I will comfort you. I will choose you again. I will choose you again. You may remember in 2 Kings, this is significant. 2 Kings 23, the Lord says, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen. I will pass them off. And now the Lord is saying, I will choose you once again. I choose Jerusalem. Now the Lord is reversing what he said in 2 Kings. What good news, which reminds us that the Lord surely is faithful to his covenant. My kids, like myself and like all of us, probably love going on vacation. My oldest son, Levi, when he's told that he has uh, only a few weeks until vacation, will, will say, I don't like weeks. I don't like weeks. Even if vacation is the next day, he'll respond with, I don't like tomorrows. It's very, it's very easy for kids and us to be impatient. And not. it's very easy for them to not put their trust in me and Catalina, knowing uh, that it's surely going to take place. We will be on vacation. Nothing to worry about. It's going to happen. And so often we do the same with the Lord. We're impatient with His timing, are we not? In part because we question if it's really going to happen. We question if it's really going to happen. But you see, the Lord was surely gracious to Israel. Everything the Lord said He was going to do, He did. And this is what the Bible bears witness of. We know from the rest of the Old Testament that the temple was rebuilt. God did exactly what He said He was going to do, and this day of restoration and blessing points forward to the final day of restoration and blessing. When our King and our High Priest, Jesus Christ, returns and make all things new, and we will live on a new heavens and a new earth that overflows in prosperity. Notice that. Overflowing with prosperity is the language used here. We look forward to that same day, a greater day, even. Christian, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 2 Peter 3.9. So wait upon Him. Hold on to His precious promises and never let them go. Be comforted by His Word. Be comforted knowing that He is sovereign. Be comforted knowing that Jesus stands before the Father as your great intercessor. No matter how you are hurting, brothers and sisters, there is comfort in the fact that God has promised to restore and renew the earth, to eradicate sin and death, and He will surely bring it about. So it says in that great Christmas hymn, He has come to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So wait upon Him. Waiting upon the Lord looks like contentment, does it not? Waiting upon the Lord looks like confidence in God's promises. A Christian who waits upon the Lord is a Christian at peace. A Christian who lacks anxiety. One who has great joy in the Lord. You see, when we don't trust God, when we don't believe in His gracious promises, we become bitter, angry, 
people, grumpy Christians. Show me a grumpy Christian, and I will show you one who is not waiting upon the Lord, who lacks contentment, is not assured of God's faithfulness. The Lord is patient towards us, Christian, and so we should surely wait upon the Lord. For those of you who have been praying for the salvation of a child for years and years and years, wait upon the Lord. For the widows and widowers who are tired and want to be with the Lord already, wait upon the Lord. For the parents who want to see some fruit from the discipline of their children, wait upon the Lord. For those who are consistently stricken from mental or physical illnesses, wait upon the Lord. No matter your situation, no matter your circumstances, the Lord surely is gracious. He is in the midst of the body of Christ. He is always working, as He was with Joseph in, in Egypt. And just like He comforted Israel in Zechariah's day, He will comfort you. If He was faithful then, then He is faithful now. And so surely the Lord is gracious, and so we can and should wait upon Him, for He will again comfort you. There is this poem that you probably have heard that I want to read to you this morning that summarizes our point. One night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints, other times there were one set of footprints. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow, or defeat, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, You promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I have noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there have always only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why? When I needed you most, you have not been there for me. The Lord replied, The times when you have seen only one set of footprints is when I carried you. See, God is always in our midst. And when our souls are content and we are assured of God's faithfulness and we wait upon our gracious God, we will be at ease. So Christian, be comforted knowing the Lord is with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you surely are with us. And so I call upon you to do what you have said and be with us now as we partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.